I don't know how we want to frame this, but I know that I need to do something that I never want to do. And I need to do it now. I need to face the music and do a goddamn intro. Welcome to Spice Bags. (laughs) (laughs) The podcast about Ireland's relationship to the world through food. I'm Julia. I'm here with Blanca, food researcher, and May, food writer. And we're getting this done, starting with my bossy ass intro. I'm doing a dance. You can't even see it. Um, Are you doing a dance? I understand the art of podcasting. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, We today actually, I'm starting this with like a effervescence because I know that we're like going to get into some, some heavy stuff, but I think also some invigorating stuff. Um, So today we are well, we're recording uh, on June 5th. And I think everybody has been going through um, a kind of psychological, I, I don't know, like tra- trauma might be too strong a word, but there are things happening in the world that we have yet to fully deal with and digest. Um, but the George Floyd riots in the US uh, or, or protests, um, which in some places became riots, have been going on for for a while now and have set off these kind of sympathy protests in places like Market Square in Helsinki. I was really touched to see that in Dublin, uh, in, uh, um, in Germany and France, all over. Um, and there've been these kind of secondary and tertiary conversations around it about not just what happened, um, in Minneapolis and what happens all the time in cities all over the U S but about, um, a kind of soul searching about uh, that. We're all kind of being prompted to do about, um, are, where does racism lie covertly? Um, how can we uh, source it out of ourselves, and um, how can we actively uh, fight it elsewhere in the world? And you see, all, everyone putting all these links up on social media to anti-racist books and anti-racist uh, bloggers and all kinds of things. Um, so we just felt like we couldn't really have a conversation. That we, there's a conversation we've been wanting to have for a long time about appropriation, and this seemed like the moment. Everyone's wants to have this conversation now, and and we want to too. Can I um, start off actually? Because I was just uh, reading Michael Twitty's um, book, uh, The Cooking Gene, and I kind of wanted to start out with his quote because I think it's appropriate. Fantastic. Um, and he he says everything black folks gave to the aristocracy and plain folks became spun gold in the hands of others from banjos to barbecue to Elvis to rice and to cotton know-how. So he's talking about, right. He's talking about the appropriation of African-American culture and culinary culture. And, and also how one of the reasons why he goes to try to find his roots is because, you know, and yes, you know, um, cultural appropriation is great, but there is also the danger of a culture being lost. Well, appropriation is a really big topic. And so it's my huge. background is art history, where appropriation is actually this really powerful um, postmodernist tactic in art, um, you know, to, to take someone else's art and rephotograph it or remake it as a critique. It's like, it's very rarely, um, I mean, seen as actually kind of cowardly or bad. Um, and yet in the food world, it's like this really dangerous hot button topic um so we're we're gonna just cut across it at like very you know specific angles we're not going to take on the whole topic but 
um, you know, we, we wanted to think about it from our Irish perspectives, you know, from what we've seen and, and lived here. Should we start talking? I think I think Ireland is still uh, a country that's very young in terms of immigration. They don't have the hundreds of years that you know you, the U.S. would have, and you know maybe Spain is ten years ahead. But you can see that immigration here is still new. Uh, people are not accustomed to you know frequenting so many different national restaurants. So I think there's still things that you read in the media or that you see that shock you. So for example, I really, really don't like some of the comments that you read about Chinese restaurants uh, just not being clean. And, you know, May, you would be much better, um, (laughs) you would be more informed about this. But do you feel there's some commentary or something that you see in the media about this and you hear people talk about that, that upsets you. So May, why did you want to bring in that quote from Michael Twitty? Like what does, I mean, what does appropriation mean for him? Well, because I mean, and, and Twitty is one of these people who will actually say that, you know, cultural appropriation drives culture forward. But I think one of the things that we're looking at when we look at the African-American culinary diaspora um, and that what he's exploring is that, you know, when, when that African-American culinary diaspora becomes subsumed by other things, well, obviously because of slavery and all these things, but like, and, and, and when does, when does that legacy become erased? And it's, it's heartbreaking. So appropriation then is, I mean, just to, just to, just to even have a working definition of it for us, for this conversation is, um, is when one culture, um, incorporates, steals, uses um, the traits or the achievements or something of another culture. And a lot of it, a lot of it's positive, right? I think that, I think what Twitty's point, right, is, is that, you know, what makes up Southern cooking is a combination of the white and the black. Um, But, but there is so much that was essentially slave cooking, Right. You know, um, that then became subsumed and adopted by white cooks. Well, yeah, he's he's also describing how capitalism, how capitalism sucks everything up and just repackages it um, in a kind of cultureless void. And then like, Um, you know, and then it loses the legacy of the people who created it. And, um, you know, so I I just, yeah, I thought it was moving. And I think it's... Have these conversations that have been like provoked by the protests and so on recently, um, and 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 everyone's discussions about anti-racism and kind of soul searching, have how have they made you guys think recently about appropriation in I don't know your own food world, the people that you read, the people that you cook, or your own practices? Can we I go think, back? To- okay. Oh. I think cultural appropriation can be um, something that can be positive. We can't avoid seeing cultural appropriation everywhere. Just look at a teapot. A teapot comes from from China. Tea. There's appropriation everywhere. There's appropriation, you know, Spain. There's appropriation in America. Like the Spanish went there, they took certain ingredients, brought them back to Europe. There, there's been appropriation, and I think there's good ways to do appropriation. And there's bad ways. And I think, you know, May and I have talked this about this many times before, that when it's done in bad taste or from a point of view of privilege and, oh, look how clever and adventurous I am, it's very, very upsetting 
to to people who cook for a living, maybe cooking that type of food. So that's the, the, the sorry, that's the, the type of cultural appropriation that happens in food where people just take a dish, repackage it with somebody preferably white, young and attractive and sell it as something revolutionary or, or new. And there's been many, many cases in, in the media recent, recently. Well, coming off of our conversation from our last episode about Alison Roman, this was exactly the charge that was leveled at her was that she was this attractive, you know, 30 year old white woman who, because she was using um, sriracha or sort of pseudo Middle Eastern um, ingredients or combinations, I should say, uh, people were saying she was a, this was one journalist who literally called her a Trojan horse, somebody who could sneak in a foreign culture into an acceptable white world. And there's this idea that like the media or the, the, there's some consensus about cultural appetites, dominant cultural appetites, that that space is a very white Western space and anything outside of it, you can kind of go out and grab something exotic and, 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 and uh, special and bring it back in. But those things are still, if you kind of think about it as a map outside, um, you know, uh, so I, th- I guess that's the charts that was leveled at, at her. Um, and I, I mean, I mean, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the one person of color here. Um, and I want to say that I know, but I want to say that, um, it's not all bad. Like, and I, and again, that's why I was on the fence about Roman, but it's not all bad. And I remember 20 years ago, even like Wolf, like Wolfgang Puck and Jean Shores von Gretten, you know, doing like Wolfgang Puck doing what is Chinese chicken salad and like in charging 30 bucks for it and Von Gretten doing spice market. And, but then also these really amazing scholars coming out like Barbara Tropp, Fuchsia Dunlop, um, and then reading, you know, books like Diane Kennedy, you know, so there was, yes, like I think in a certain way. Sorry, what order, are those all examples of? Uh, cookbooks and chefs. The who what who who were non Asian and did amazing. Well, not I mean no what not like I mean like Diane Kennedy would have been Mexico Rick Bayless be another one but I'm just saying that it would be sort of non white privileged cultures right and you have white privileged people who come in and they make them great and I didn't have a problem with that I think that that was a necessary step it was it it was needed to pave the way. In a way, it makes me think of our conversation with Manuela Spinelli, in, in which we talked about the kind of analogy or, or cultural interpretation um, and an analogy with language. Exactly. And in a, in a sense, these people, you had people 20 or 30 years ago who worked as translator interpreters, in exactly. a sense, you know, and now we take for granted that everybody knows what a, you know, what a, what an avocado is. But for Rick Bayless, you know, um, but you're the, I mean, you're the, you're the, oh, he didn't bring Mexican food to Chicago, but he brought high end Mexican food. But, but also, but he went to, like, I mean, you're the PhD here, right? Like, these people were going and doing deep dive researches. And like, he still does. Yeah, like, fluent in the languages, just, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and really also making an effort to not only bring those cuisines, but the people forward. And, yeah. you know, you know, and uh, like, and like, you know, back then you needed a white privileged person to do that. There was no other way. And from- we forget something very important as the only person who is not a native, like my English was not my first language. 
I think um, white privilege in an Anglo-Saxon, you know, setting, people forget how difficult it is when you do not speak the language, whether you're Chinese or Spanish or Mexican, you know, you move to America, you move to Ireland. If you don't speak the language fluently, how do you sell yourself? How do you sell your food? And it's only very recently that we've had hordes of people from all over the world learning English, coming to Ireland, going to the US, like people who can afford it. Like, you know, Chinese people, uh, Indian people, Spanish people spend thousands of dollars a year to train their kids in English. So how could somebody in Mexico, from Mexico and Chicago become Rick by less? I think now there's going to be a new generation of chefs that will be able to do that. But I think... I think the landscape has changed. I mean, like, at least, like, again, like, I'm going to bring it back to me because it's always about me. Um, <laughs> but well, I wanted um, to ask you, because you said that 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 cultural appropriators or interpreters had made you understand your own cultural traditions. Yes. Better. Well, no, and not only that, so to, love my, to love my own Chinese, uh, Chinese culinary traditions, right? I, you know, I grew up where my food culture was disdained and was disgusting. And then you read someone like Barbara Tropp or you go to a restaurant that is at Schoenfeld and, and you read Fuchsia Dunlop and you're awakened to the fact that this is a desirable thing. And that they also, all three of them, just spent so much energy and time and like, you know, whatever, like learning language, whatever. And, you know, to understand this. Um, and it, and it made, I mean, I still don't think of my, I don't still don't, don't think of Chinese cuisine as really that part, much part of me, but like to really accept that Chinese cuisine could be great. It was because of these white people. Yeah. Cause they bestowed the kind of valorized, uh, white attention or like white media. Well, and but yeah, and you know, and people people were responding, right? This is not the you know, this is not the twenty twenty dumplings for ten bucks in Chinatown. But still, right, well, may, but, people get sometimes very upset with people doing that, even if it comes from a place of love, even if they're very knowledgeable and they've worked really hard. It wasn't an adventure. You know how how you read that whole adventure um, kind of narrative. Oh, I went to Thailand and I had this amazing thing. And then I set up my fabulous restaurant. But even, even with people like of their category, people still get upset. And I'd like to see, why do you think people get upset about that? You know, I think actually, but I mean, I will say that uh, one of my colleagues, Georgia Friedman just came out with a book about Yunnan cooking. Uh, she's fluent in Chinese. Um, she's half Jewish, half wasp. Uh, she spent three years in Yunnan. She was aware that the landscape had changed. So what, it changed enough to allow her to do this? No, what no, not allowed her to do this. Like if she'd done this oh. 15 years ago, she like everyone would have lauded her. But now she would, you know, now she was aware that everyone would question her book. And what the question? Well, her authority. I think that, um, well, I want to go back to how we 
like we individually are are thinking about our own practices, you know, um, in a second, but you circulated this essay craving the other, which was went viral a couple of years ago, came out first in 2014 has been anthologized since by Soleil Ho. Who is now uh, the, yeah, the restaurant critic. Yeah. San Francisco Chronicle restaurant critic. And she's a second generation Vietnamese American. Yes. Um, so one woman's beef with cultural appropriation and cuisine. And I, in it, she writes about how um, the value diminishes of things like, uh, you know, uh, si- the dirty little thing, you, dirty little street stall in Saigon, that fantastic foe you had there, et cetera. Um, the value diminishes if they're allowed an ounce of banality in order for them to make you look like a more exciting, more interesting person they must remain firmly outside the realm of the mundane. And I thought that was really, that scratched an itch for me. That's something that's always really bothered, or that's been bothering me recently. You know, I've been talking about how food is getting too good. (laughs) I have this thing about like, it sounds crazy, but like mediocrity or something, that the space of the banal, of the ordinary is like disappearing as people search more and more for these like, uh, culinary highs and these top 50 lists. I mean, everyone complains about these dumb Instagram things where everybody has to go take a picture of themselves eating the thing or this really culturally insensitive cycling, you know, pho is the new, uh, udon or whatever, which is just like brain breakingly stupid. <laughs> like have these, well, that's have different. I think, cultures is trying to, I think no, but, what I, but what I'm saying is that, is that, um, is that in a way, this kind of um, the the kind of appropriation that that Soleho writes about is an exoticizing one and one that is all about feeling really special, whereas um, the and also just takes the food completely out of the culture. Whereas what you describe um, Georgia Friedman doing um, and and a lot of other people, I mean, obviously appropriation is it's all about how it's done, right? But um, is to is to go and immerse herself in 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 the banal in the everyday in the way the culture works in and out. Um, and not just to have uh, a single special encounter. Um, and I thought that was really, um, I thought that was a really important point. I like the way it intersects with this idea of the mundane or the mediocre. I think, okay, so let's, let's go back to what you were saying. Um, I think that there's also, but there's, um, we want to sort of see again, how that's going to play out because is it, is it then going to be limiting for us, Right. For Georgia Friedman, who loves Yunnan food, we can't all pick there's up and a go limit- to Yunnan for three right. years. Right, and there's also, also but there's a limitation for her. Right, she can't be creative with Yunnan food. She might be able to be, you know, because she's got you know all eyes on her. She has to be the most accurate journalist possible. Sure, the responsibility that comes with entering another culture yeah. in this in this hypersensitive environment is must be really stressful. Right. But I think, I mean, that's the thing about Alison Roman, to go back to Alison Roman's cooking, um, which, you know, you and I were talking about this, the two of you and I were talking about this in the last episode. This is, it's just some, the way that somebody who lives in New York City cooks, yeah. right? Somebody who walks by international grocers. And actually, you know, in Dublin, I walk by either, either direction I go, I walk by um, an international uh, grocery store where I can get all kinds of stuff. And of course, I want to go in and I pick up a bunch of dal and I pick up a bunch of spices and I mess around with them, you know, like, and does that make me an insensitive? Does it make you a bad yeah. person? Right. Like, I think, does it's make- not, sorry, I think oh it wasn't God, how- Alison Roman. Um, I think it's more how the media portrays it, like the recipe that broke the internet. And I show it to my Indian neighbor and he's just laughing. I mean, it's a recipe that's been a, like, it's just, 
ginger, turmeric, garlic, chickpeas, coconut milk, and you think that this is the recipe that broke the internet. I think it's not that she did the recipe. It's that this is glorified as a recipe when we've been cooking with these ingredients all along, you know, especially obviously in Asia. But what is it? Why, why does it take a white person to make this recipe for everybody to be wow? But then if it's somebody else, it's not that exciting or I don't know. I think that's what people were upset about. It wasn't the recipe. It wasn't, it was just, wow. Why is this? You know, yeah. There's, I mean, I want to go back to this, but I actually also just want to sort of steer it a little bit back to Ireland and why we need to talk about cultural appropriation and, you know, what I was seeing as sort of cultural appropriation, which was in many ways positive. Right. But when I, when I talk about cultural appropriation, usually it's like white dudes, opening up a restaurant of which is a cuisine of a different culture and making money from it. Or just because it's trendy. And because it's trendy and or because they're really passionate about it. And and it, you know, but um and we talked about this earlier, right? Like it's like this is not necessarily a bad thing. But it does when I was in New York, again with Von Gretten and Spice Market and um, Von Garten Spice Market, like, uh, I think paved the way for someone like David Chang. Um, it's like white guys need to be in there first, need to be in that space first, but we need to acknowledge that this is a thing. And so in Ireland, I'm seeing that happen. Um, I love the guys. I love like Carl Whelan at Hangdai, um, a lot. And what's right? Hangdai? Hendai is, you know, the hipster Chinese restaurant that everybody swoons about. Um, and to paraphrase Solejo, it would be one of those places where, like, the only person of color working in the kitchen is the dishwasher. Um, and it's, you know, it's Chinese food. And how much time they spend in China was pretty negligible. And you on the website, they're like, yes, we want to make dishes that... Uh, and I sorry say I, I didn't think Hang Dai was very Chinese, like especially like panna cotta or something like that. <laughs> sorry, but you know, pan Asian. I thought it was pan Asian. They were doing Peking duck, um, and you know, it was a ch- it's a Chinese restaurant. And so, and you know, I think something on like the website, they're like, you know, don't be deceived by the way we look like a takeaway. We want to do dishes that would make every Chinese grandmother proud. Which as if you a know, takeaway would as if as if a takeaway. I mean, there's a lot of things um, that are interesting about that. But um, I mean, this this podcast kind of came about because the three of us were sitting at a Fujian breakfast restaurant on Cape. Oh, what's the street again? Parnell Street on Parnell Street, and um, I never leave my house. And um, the we were reading a review. Of a Chinese restaurant, of a Chinese, of a, of a pan Asian kind of upscale pan Asian restaurant, in which the, these Irish reviewers were saying, essentially, this this place is safe for Irish people, or like this place is not too Chinese, um, right? And, and we the were all kind of like, clean. The, and the bathrooms are clean, and we were all kind of, I mean, we were, we were our jaws were dropped, but we were also laughing about it. But it opened up a whole bunch of conversations about who you know, how, who gets to sell what and how. And, um, and I mean, that sort of was, was like the genesis of this whole, of this whole project. But um, it paves, like I said, it does let paves the way for, I mean, if you, if you're looking at sort of 
what has happened in New York and San Francisco and LA, white dudes doing hip, like white hipster dudes doing stuff of other cultures, slapping a big price tag on it enables other people to then go forward and be creative. So in that way, I think it's a positive thing. It's a positive thing. And there's a lot of people who do it out of respect. I worked with a chef in Chicago because in another life, I sold Spanish products and American artisanal products. So I also realized that when chefs open a restaurant that brings so much money to, you know, the coffers of the Spanish state or the coffers of the olive oil producers. But, you know, I, I've met a lot of chefs who are doing Spanish food or Latin food, and they did it with so much respect and love that it never bothered me. I think, to be honest, I've never been bothered with people cooking Spanish food who are not Spanish. And, and you know, guys, I've recommended Anya von Brenson's books for ages, the book, her book about Spain. She hasn't even lived in Spain, but it's such an amazing book. But I did find, like, I don't know, going back to one, one person in Ireland um, that we talked about before, J.P. McMahon, he, he made a comment about disgruntled Spaniards in his restaurant about him cooking Spanish food. And I was really surprised. I was like, what does he mean? I, I just, I haven't experienced that. I would never go to a restaurant like, I don't know, in Salamanca Tapas Bar and say, oh, why are they cooking Spanish food? They're not Spanish. Only my grandmother can cook here. No, I like, I'm delighted. I'm like, great. And if they're using yeah. manchego and they're importing things, that's fantastic. You know, I, I don't see how, I, I think if it's done disrespectfully or not acknowledging it, then maybe. I really think we should. I really but I think the landscape is changing. Question. Oh, okay. Sorry. That I, I really want you to answer this question because I, I, I do think these are interesting conversations, but I think they're, they're, they're us talking about like the world in a very know it all y way or like not know it all y, but like kind of masterful way. And I really want, I think it's more, I think it's interesting um, in the time we have left. I, I want us to ask like, so for, for each of you, how has this moment of, of, self-reflection about our relationship to cultures that are um, marginalized or um, that have less space, less visibility. How has your relationship to those cultures um, changed or have you been thinking about them? What have you changed in the past couple of days? Like what's been occupying your mind when it comes to, um, you know, appropriation or some version of it in food? I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, um, I used to work for, for a not-for-profit in Chicago teaching African-American children how to cook. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And I've been thinking what a disconnect there was between the not-for-profit and the actual communities that we went to. And it kind of made me sad to think, because I also worked with Hispanic communities and obviously there was a huge connect there because I grew up in Latin America. I could speak Spanish. Um, but you know, when we try also to help people that we think, you know, oh, these people need our help. Sometimes we don't even know what the problem is. So here's, you know, an organization trying to teach uh, very low income children in, you know, the south of Chicago, how to cook, I don't know, pasta carbonara. And you think, hold on, is that really the issue we're trying to solve here? When these kids live in food deserts? So I don't know, I've been thinking about those kids and thinking what happened with them and, you know, just it brought back those memories of how, you know, sometimes we think as white people that we can go in and 
teach you guys how to how to you know educate your children like how to cook but in reality we have no clue and what we need to do is empower people in that community to do it and i remember very clearly there were no no black people developing the programs or doing you know the recipes and you know it kind of made me angry 10 years on that mm. i didn't speak my mind and say guys why don't we go and find people from that community yeah, recruit they're going to know so much better so that's what's been on my mind yeah or the idea that quote how to cook is cultural and political it's not just um it's not just a function of eating Function yeah. of eating, that's backwards, but anyway, it's not just, <laughs> it's not just a, fun, a, a thing you do. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, because like my world is so, uh, I guess, professionally much more involved with, with art and museums and things, I, I've been thinking a lot about, I'm not going to set foot in a goddamn museum, <laughs> well, pro- like coronavirus aside, when it becomes legal to. Um, if, if all of those, if all of their shows are like Michelangelo's goddamn shiny, enormous penis all over again, I'm just not doing it. Like I, and I want to see black curators and curators of, of color and whatever, um, up and down the masthead. I'm, I'm fucking through. I'm done. I'm not going, I'm not setting foot. I don't care if, and like, I'm a specialist in Western art, but I'm so bored of this. And I feel intimidated now that I think about it by this, like, a th- implicit authoritative voice of, um, of, of a dominant culture. And I think this map I was kind of drawing and uh, visualizing earlier of like the dominant culture being a circle and then, you know, everything quote exotic being outside of it. And this dominant circle gets to draw things in, you know, everything, everything is, um, centripetal. Julia, can I ask you, can I ask you, but this is like what I'm saying about like food too. It's kind of made me realize that like everything in the center needs to be given weight and time and energy. Um, sorry, like everything from outside needs to come into the center and get the same kind of time and energy, you know, Julia, can I, I mean, this is as a French, you're a French art historian. What do you think of Paul Gauguin? Because we were talking about appropriation and art before. Well, that is a very complicated question, but I will say, I, first of all, never understood why everyone liked him so much. Like I, I, w- I like, I will say that, but also, um, some of the best thinkers about Paul Gauguin have, well, Gauguin was a fraud, basically. I mean, he, he stole from people. Um, he, he was a, he, he'd wiped out financially before he went off to Tahiti. A lot of the things that he claimed to have experienced in Tahiti were um, complete lies. Like by the time he got there, our missionaries had already gotten there and sort of quote modernized um, according to you know his definition of modern the place. So um, he's a fraud. He's up and down a fraud. Um, but uh, but you know and there's aside, chefs. I think there's chefs that like would have maybe like done like a Gauguin cultural misappropriation. But I do think like I don't think that means that we should cut Gauguin out of the oh, can. God, no. I think it means we should talk about yeah. that fraudulence. That fraudulence is so interesting. And some of the best writers about Gauguin have talked about how he, how stealing and reusing and remaking are part of his work, not as, um, you know, an exalted form of appropriation or not as some clever postmodernist or modern trick, but, but as like this foundational fraudulence that is like so interesting that, that to, to go back into the DNA, into the canon, you know, and find um, cheaters and um, thieves is so fun. And I mean, in in a way, I think that's a really fun 
and it's relevant to the food world. It's is relevant. It's relevant to it's irrelevant. It's relevant to the to stop and look back and kind of say, well, so who was Jean Georges von Gerichten then in this whole story? And I think you're totally right that he's not a Van Gogh or he's not a Gauguin. (laughs) He's not a Gauguin. Like he's not a guy who who um, who stole and cheated. You know, he was very sincere. Like he was very sincerely trying to, um, I think, immerse himself in and uh, and. well, that's the problem. Elevate a culture. I mean, what about this? Story the, the a years elevate. Ago? Well, elevate. That's exactly. It. But <laughs> but elevate. But elevate. Not elevate as in elevate the culture, but elevate value wise. Take something that yeah. had not been costly and make it expensive. Yes. Yeah. Um. And that, as you point out, really paves the way. I mean, just a few years ago, um, in New York, there was a Chinese restaurant that was doing very high end Chinese. And they've closed and had to reopen as a kind of dumpling place because people just won't still shell out for really high-end Chinese. Um, and in our conversation with um, Kwanji, our first episode um, that we released, May, you said that what you wanted to see in the world of Chinese food was really brave people putting out expensive Chinese food. Yep. Um, but, and, you know, and along those lines, though, I think that there has been, I mean, so uh, another anecdote would have been the two ladies from Portland who bragged about, you know, stealing the <laughs> recipes for lobster tacos, but because they publicly, okay, like, yes. they, they publicly bragged about it. And so they got taken down, but that sort of thing happens all the time. They shouldn't have bragged about it. They, no, I think they should have. No, because what it is is that it's, it's just like that happens all the time that you, you steal and you think you can get away with it. This we is again, kind of, we have like, kind of, love to hate like um remember a few years ago the lucky lee thing i forget what part of the country it was but those there were like these two white people that opened a chinese restaurant they advertised it as chinese but like but healthy like chinese but not gross um and they got slammed by everyone on the internet but they were so gloriously tone deaf and so stupid and all their PR was so dumb. And even their apologies were like, we're so sorry for trying to elevate Chinese food to make Chinese food edible. It was just like, you don't get it. And like, there's, I think there is a kind of schadenfreude or like a fascination with, with people who do it wrong. Because when you look at somebody doing it wrong, then you do kind of feel about yourself. Uh Aha. Yeah. I am sophisticated. I am moving between cultures in a responsible way. You know, it makes you feel good about yourself to, to dump on these like toned up shitheads. Um, I wasn't going to swear this episode, but that felt right. <laughs> oh, I was going to say the Gordon Ramsay show. Oh, the um, you were saying. Yeah. yeah. What is it? Um, hold on. And it's, I realized that we're going to have Geographic. Oh no, yeah, it's National Geographic. This is amazing. Julia, have you, it's called Uncharted. It's so amazing. So tone deaf. It's so Gordon Ramsay. So it's his like version of Anthony Bourdain. Um, so he goes to all these far flung places, and um, and then at the end he competes with a local to prove that his version of the thing is the best. The dish is the best. It's that that the Peru episode um, that you showed me was so really ridiculous, and and it was. Incredible. I, I thought about this from an economics point of view. Like, I'm sure that Peru paid for this trip. So you think all these Peruvian nationals sponsored Gordon Ramsay to go and record that him cooking uh, with some Indian women in the Sacred Valley. I, I think you know that type of explore, exploration of cuisines is is really. But to, to, but to fit, yeah. 
But to finish it with a competition for him to prove that he can cook better than a local? It's, yeah. Surprise Um, National Geographic went for that. Do you guys remember when uh, Bobby Flay jumped on the counter in Iron Chef, in the Iron Chef competition? Um, And it was like so insulting to the Japanese chefs. I remember thinking Bobby Flay was the absolute worst. Um, Anyway, that's... That was the 90s. <laughs> that was the 90s. Can I say something about the 90s? I was just reminded uh, of Milli Vanilli. We should have an award, like, the, like in the food world, somebody <laughs> who does something similar. Like, here you have these sexy black guys singing, but in reality, it was some, like, small, not very attractive white guy who was singing. So I think it's the same probably with food, that you have these really gorgeous white girl cooking, but in reality, the recipes were made by a poor mestizo woman in Mexico who has no teeth, you know, but who cares? We want to see the white girl cooking it. It's yeah. in a way it's well, similar. It's just, but, but it, it is also, we are culpable of wanting to see things like that too. Like if they put the option in Spain, there's a big debate in the flamenco world about Rosalia, who is a very famous singer who, who takes a lot of influences from flamenco. And they were saying, People want to see a young, beautiful girl from Barcelona singing this, not some gypsy guy, you know, who has half his teeth missing. Who? So it's we're also, you know, the ones to blame for this. So maybe we also need to support things that are not <clears throat> not sexy, not sexy, not beautiful. Yeah. But you know, the well, music, especially in music, who cares what the person looks like? Well, I mean, I think. The- that like you're bringing up um, the, the, the fact that there's this like huge media market that's constantly demanding new things. And I understand that food is always changing, but not at the speed that this market demands new food trends and new, you know, concoctions of sexy cookbooks and sexy new people to bring it to us. And like, if I, I look at the cookbooks that I bought over the past couple of years, the ones that are the most useless, hands down, are like the Anna Joneses and the My New Roots, I forget her name, and the Get the Glow, like all of these like beautiful, like the, I bought Get the Glow, girl. And if you look <laughs> at me, I look like I'm a sandpaper glued to like a, a husk. Like there's no glow, but... but the point is, <laughs> Isn't that Alison Freer? Yeah. I don't know. She's like some internet uh, twat. But the point is that, um, the, that like those books are the worst because they use like, cheap peasant like traditions and food and food right there's a lot of lentils and stuff but then they make it incredibly expensive um and complicated and they take out all of the uh carbo the sustaining like carbohydrates there's this totally anti-carb thing i got my new roots because it's a vegetarian cookbook when i was briefly a vegetarian and like um great there's vegetarian recipes but also like they've stamped out any possible gluten and any possible sugar and any possible, you know, so they're super complicated. They use like weird flowers that you can't find in any normal supermarket. And go rancid very quickly. And all of the sugars are maple syrup and honey, which I don't even want to begin to talk about how stupid that is. Like maple cooking with maple syrup. Do you know how much you have to take like 10 maple trees and like take all of their sap out to get like a tablespoon of maple syrup, which is a very specific thing. It should only be used on pancakes in the dead of winter in Vermont. It should not be used as like a replica for just any old sugar. Honey, like I don't, whatever. I'm now I'm, I'm on a rant now. But no, but, um, but I was going to say that the appropriation, the, 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 the face, like these sexy women to take like vaguely pseudo, like 
Middle Eastern things and make them quote healthy. Um, and they're disgusting and expensive. But can I also just, can I also just bring back, like, again, like we talked a little bit about music and we're talking about back to cultural appropriation, right? That oh, back from of, my rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, it's that like the, the, the culinary cultural appropriation, um, can mirror a little bit about music cultural appropriation. It's this idea that the landscape, because the landscape has changed and we're learning more that, that what we do changes, um, and yet we can't criticize in the past. So for instance, someone was saying to me, it's like Beastie Boys probably saved 90s rap. That might be a controversial thing, like Jewish white guys rapping might have saved the future of 90s rap. Would the Beastie Boys be okay now knowing what we do now? Or for instance, even earlier, like David Bowie's China Girl, which is a song I love, but that's not going to work now. Wait, so the world is changing. Yeah, the walls have gone up. But the walls, right? Food is changing. Like food is changing. Like understanding is changing, and it's that's a positive thing. So May, my daughter asked me today, could she make bulgogi with chorizo? So obviously, (laughs) from what I'm hearing from you, she can't. Is that the answer? No, I'm, I'm like that's the thing. Like I'm super paranoid. Like I said, I was like, oh my god, can I not like make? Carbonara, fried chicken, and bulgogi with can chorizo. I make carbon? Yeah, can I make everything with chorizo? Yeah, I mean it's terrible, but you guys, I think the last time you guys were over for dinner at my place, like I made like a cheat gumbo with chicken, sausage, shrimp, and okra, which you know, like I should be shooting myself for. Like, why would I do that? Why would I be so disrespectful? But it was pretty delicious. Yeah, it no, was you don't really. You don't really mean that that's disrespectful, do you? I mean, no, but it was, you know, it's like, it's like, I really crave these flavors. Do I know New Orleans? I was messing around. I think what what is really, it's not putting it on Instagram and saying you invented this recipe. Exactly. Exactly. Don't get publishing a book. Instagram's a toilet bowl. Don't go there. (laughs) (laughs) I hate Instagram. Um, But can we also just maybe like quickly, I mean, like, if we have a little bit of time just to give a shout out to some people in Ireland who might you know right so i was gonna say um grape circus enrico fantasia is super knowledgeable about italian wine um i love chef aziz krush at marrakesh um who used to be at new york's medina and also um marrakesh's la mamunia and he's just amazing with knowledge um errol at ayla uh the bookshelf at asia market um because that's open right now um, Emma McDonald has been really interesting because her hometown is Minneapolis. So she's yes, interesting about say, she's, McDonald in Image Magazine. Yeah, she's like, that. right, she's a woman of color, um, talking about that. And then also head stuff, uh, Pints of Malt just met these guys. They're amazing. They're Nigerian Irish. And so they talk about like living in Ireland, um, and it goes from, you know, Love Island. Um, and, you know, school dinners to politics and racism. And it's a really interesting window. That's a great shout. Yeah. Pints of malt for sure. Pints of malt. Yeah. Uh, Pints of malt. And it's a head stuff and they're, they're fantastic guys. Um, Cool. So that's just a, just a couple of things, but um, to, to get us thinking. Um, Do you you guys hear that? That's my 
naked child in front of the that's my naked child in front of the television screaming for beverages and an actual jar woman okay i gotta go um this has been spice bags hey if you have five seconds can you please rate and review us on um, itunes we love that just because it would really help other people interested in these kinds of topics find us um and we keep promising we're going to come back around and talk more about um manuela and the spaghetti gate but we'll get to it next time um thanks for listening This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.